From runasradio.com, you're listening to Run As Radio, the internet audio talk show for IT professionals with Richard Campbell. This is Brandon Wen announcing show number 783, Building SQL DevOps Tools with guest Kendra Little. Recorded Monday, June 21st, 2021. Run As Radio is produced each week by Sound Thoughts LLC. For more information, visit soundthoughtsllc.com. You can follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash runasradio. Thank you, Brandon. This is Richard Campbell, and thanks for listening to Run As Radio. Today, my guest is Kendra Little, who's a product manager at Redgate and a database nerd who loves performance tuning and automation. And she's an American living in the UK who carries on long conversations with her pets. Is that a quarantine thing, you know? I, and I just asked you before we started recording, you moved to the UK right before lockdowns. Well done, Kendra. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thank you very much. Yes, I moved to the UK in March 2020 so that I could work at an office with other people. After, after nearly 10 years of working at home, mm-hmm. I decided it was time to try to work with other people in in person, <laughs> I was in the office for two weeks before lockdown And then they closed started. it. <laughs> and so now I'm celebrating more than 10 years of working from home. home. <laughs> but on multiple continents. That's awesome. Yeah, no, you've got, you have to get a whole other skill level there suddenly. My youngest moved in with her fiance in February of 2020. And it, oh, and, wow. Yeah, it's like, welcome to your first apartment together. Now you can't leave. <laughs> so, I mean, good news <laughs> is they've made it. They're still together and I, and you know, bought a home. And we're postponing the wedding because we have family all over the world until everyone can travel. But, uh, yeah, they're okay. But talk about a challenge. So, uh, these are the stories of this, of this maddening time. I was also surprised to see, I mean, I've known you as a dev rel or, you know, IT relation kind of person. You're a great communicator. You help folks understand technology, but you've changed up. You've gone, you've become a product manager. How did that happen? I, yeah, I have, I have gone into product management, the, the PM role. I mean, PM, you know, it could stand for a lot of things. Right. Product manager, project manager, manager. program manager. Mm-hmm. Sometimes I'm the the product manager uh, variety of this, but it's been really, really exciting. I mean, I think it it does have um, certain things that are in common with DevRel stuff in that users are really important. Mm-hmm. Talking to users, talking to customers is really, really important. But it is kind of a big, uh, big shift on that. But you're also, I mean, a legit domain expert. You've done the work. You have been a. Have you, I kind of think you've been a customer of the products you're now. So you're now helping to manage. You haven't told me what products you're you're working on, though. <laughs> so uh, it's, there's kind of a funny story about about that, actually. Um, so I am focusing on our database DevOps products, right? For the Microsoft data platform market. Beautiful. So how how do people do DevOps with databases? How do you do agile software development with databases? There's there's more than tools to this, right? Yeah, this yeah, isn't absolutely. just a tooling problem. Yeah. Uh, but tooling is a big part of the problem. How do you how do you develop effective processes and communications as a team? How do you work together? Like it's hard to get databases to be agile. So tooling is very helpful yeah, with really that too. And we, we, 
Yeah. So we focus on um, tooling, but also making sure that tooling can really enable teams to work successfully together and and work with the different flavors of processes people people work. But kind of the funny story around this is so I've once upon a time, I was a database administrator and I had a dev team that came to me and they said, you know, we we want to use some tools to help make this easier. Right. We want these tools to look at the database and help write the code for these changes. Change scripts. And we want to kind of automate some things. Um, and this was way back in the day, Redgate SQL Compare Engine, before Redgate had any database DevOps products. Right. And they wanted to kind of automate all this stuff. And I was kind of in gatekeeper mode as a DBA at the time. And I was like, no. You're, oh, this doesn't sound safe. <laughs> and I Such was really, really doubtful. I, yeah. I was in this role of the database person who's the protector of production. I must guard everything and kind of really gatekeep change and process, right? So, um, well, I mean, there's a spin on this that's positive. It's like ultimately you are responsible as a DBA for the protection and integrity of the data. So, you know, you do see runaway automation as a potential threat that can damage data legitimately. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, but, you know, it's, it's, it is that, that funny journey from being the one who was like, no, automation is dangerous. You shouldn't do that to, to having really come full circle on this to the point of saying, you know, doing things manually is dangerous too. Dangerous, yeah. Arguably more dangerous. At least with automation, it's consistently wrong. Inconsistency is so much more dangerous and manual processes are naturally inconsistent. Yeah, exactly. So it's it's not about whether, you know, automation inherently is not safe. It's not dangerous. It can be either as yes. can manual processes, but it's really, it can be a tool to help you say, how can we build in checks? So how can we make things safer with automation? Right. How can we reduce some of this toil, some of this work nobody wants to actually spend time mm -hmm. on and spend more time thinking about the hard problems, the interesting stuff, the the architecture where we want to go rather than how do we hand write every bit of code that we use in every part of the process. Yeah. So um so yeah, I, I I was a customer, but I also have in the past been the the person who's really suspect of this and the person who was like, no, you shouldn't do this. This is crazy talk. Yeah. But <laughs> but but that also means you can speak to all of those concerns. You know, I've certainly, you know, sat in all of those seats as well, where it's like, how do I raise your level of confidence in this automation? Like, what do we need to see? What are the cues that give us a sense of what's being changed and how's it's being changed and so forth? I mean, honestly, I remember the SQL data tools out of Microsoft generating nicer change scripts than I would write myself. And, and how mm -hmm. powerful that was that when those were, when those change scripts were generated and they were beautiful, like you would be proud to say, I wrote this. That made, that was very powerful too. They, 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 you, you, I'm not, I'm not running anything. All I'm doing is making change scripts for you, what do you think? Mm -hmm, exactly. And that, you know, again, they I left all the power in the DBA's hand. Like right? they can choose to use them or not, but 
especially when we're talking, you know, nasty changes, like a ripple change across a bunch of tables and things. We were going from one entity to two, to multiple entities. And so there's a couple of many, many tables and like that whole set of changes happen all at once. And that's a long, miserable script. And if you get any of it wrong, it's a mess. And so the fact that it was made by a tool and it was neat and tidy was wildly compelling. This is actually one of the really interesting things about working in the the Microsoft space mm -hmm. is there is a lot of really great high quality free tooling that Microsoft has made available to people using the Microsoft stack. Right. And that as as a partner of Microsoft and as someone who's also a vendor in that space, it actually makes life really interesting for us because you have to make sure that you can provide more value and that you help people in different ways than the free tools. But it's actually really, really nice because your customer base can get into this can mindset of automation. It gets into the culture so much right. more when there is more options for people, when there is uh, habits of doing this, when there's alternatives that people can test out and you can have kind of a whole marketplace of these things at different price points. Um, I very much think that that's, that's great. It, you're raising the tide, right? Like that, that, that it's not just one outlier saying you could do it this way. It's like, oh no, everybody's doing this. The question is, how do you want to do it? Which, which set of tooling makes you happiest? Exactly. You know, and I, I mean, I, I'm not going to shy away from you work from Redgate. Like SQL compare was first. Like that, that tool was out so far ahead of everyone else. And at that time was a pretty innovative thing. The idea that you could take, you know, two sets of DML and it would show you the differences between them. Like that was, there was no tooling at Microsoft that looked like that at that time. Right. But, you know, the market grew up. Redgate made more things. Microsoft made more things. And then this DevOps movement came. And I can't tell you how many shows I've done where we're struggling with how does a database play in this rapid iterating world? Because it does have a different set of rules because you don't get to just replace the database at any time. The data is kind of important. <laughs> kind of. <laughs> I used to, in my former life when I was a consultant, I would love to ask customers like, so is it a big deal if we lose data in this database? And, you know, like 99 times out of 100, the answer is, oh, yeah, it's a really big problem. Mm -hmm. But then there's that one time out of 100 when somebody's like, oh, actually, this one is no, actually, it's not a big deal. Yeah. It only needs to be what's kind of right or partly right. And you're just, in those cases, you're just like, oh, this is a fun one. It's so luxurious. <laughs> well, and it, certainly I've run across databases where it's very regenerable, right? Like we have the log files. We It just takes time to reprocess them. But... It's we're only throwing it into database for analytics reasons. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, that is luxurious. But you know, and I'm totally with you. It's like I was always on the performance tuning side. And so we had to we sort of listed down this. What's the most important things? Like there's how they and there was the question of data integrity, performance, scalability, you know, number of users, that sort of thing. And and you had to rank them. Oh, okay. Yeah. You know, like, and it, that was the whole point is like, this helps us talk coherently about making choices when we rank those things. It's easy to say everything's important. Right. But it's like, what's more important? And, that class, and the classic one is, is it more important that the transaction's correct or that it's fast? Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. Because, and it's pretty quickly, it's easy to say, an incorrect a fast, incorrect transaction is not only not valuable, it does harm. 
So it's like, yeah, it's actually more important to be correct. I, I absolutely would like my bank to have that point of view. Pretty sure. Yeah, pretty sure. <laughs> and and yes, thing is, you know, there's classes of data where accuracy is everything. So it's like that. And usually you can pick the first one and it's usually accuracy. The others are more interesting, right? Especially in the scalability equations where it's like, I'd rather support more users slower than fewer users faster, right? And that and that's an interesting conversation too. There are some fun things to dig into when you're prioritizing these things. So one conversation I always like to have with folks, and this comes up a lot in in terms of um, deployment automation or even manual deployments, is uh, what counts as downtime? Yeah. Right? Like it, downtime and performance seem like different things when you first start talking about them. But, you know, if I have a page that I'm a web page that hasn't refreshed in 30 seconds, does that count as downtime? Or does that count as slow performance? Right. What if it, you know, takes two minutes to refresh? You know, there's a certain level of bad performance that becomes downtime. But you have to really dig into it specifically for different use cases mm -hmm. in order to kind of figure out how to how to classify that. Yeah, and, and, and important to build that set of priorities because it does help with decision making about how much effort should we put into, for example, integrating those database changes into that automated, you know, deployment workflow. When the new app comes out, the database changes are automatically part of it because getting those features online is super important. Like there are other approaches to this. I've seen very successful organizations where the database changes are completely asynchronous to the application changes, <laughs> but the application feature changes stay dark until the database changes are in place and tested in the field and so forth. Like, the, the, they they are always deploying code, but often they're not turning that code on until much later. Like this idea of we build a feature, deploy the feature, that's just not real for them anyway, the way they do that. Mm -hmm. But they don't build that same set of bindery that I think we expect today where it's like a deploy of an app includes the deploy of the database changes. Right, exactly, yeah. Um, sometimes you do end up, I mean, I, I admit... Uh, as so, as someone who's working on the product side now, occasionally I will do things where I'll ask for a feature flag and something right. we're we're going to deploy or build in a product, and I I do get reminded that every feature flag we add has overhead, adds complexity, yes. adds something. You know, you don't we don't want our feature flags to have their own feature flags <laughs> all the time. Yeah. Um. You know, none of these things are free, but they are very, very valuable. And they make, they give us a lot of flexibility. And they also let us turn things on and turn things off in an important way that maybe a business user can even control sometimes sure. in terms of lighting up a feature for certain customers. So I'm a huge fan of, of feature flags, but it, this is one of those ironies in life where as a product manager, when I ask for them, I, I do get reminded that they aren't free. Yeah. There's another question, which is when do feature flags get removed? Like that, you know, isn't that, a, isn't that a fun initiative to go through and say, hey, this is a feature that's now stable. People are happy with it. That should never, ever be shut off. Can we actually knock down a few of these things? Because you know this now as a product manager. Every decision you make is kind of permanent. You know, people are now going to take dependencies on it. People now buy the product because of those things. They'll never go away. And that, and that baggage is cumulative. The baggage is cute. I mean, there is the art of deprecating features, yeah. right? The art <laughs> of taking things away is an interesting one because things aren't actually useful forever. Right. Very true. To everyone. But that doesn't mean that they aren't in place somewhere. I mean, we we struggle with this, you know, both in terms of like 
the software we build, but then also a lot of database people struggle with this in terms of, you know, databases themselves. So Microsoft with their databases are kind of famous for, you know, flagging a feature as deprecated. And you're kind of like, well, what does that mean? Yeah. Yeah. We don't want you to use this anymore, but it's not like we're actually going to take it away from you ever. <laughs> right. And some of them are, so it's sort of like sometimes just a mark of disapproval. Yes. <laughs> Like, what you're doing is naughty. Really that's not that's not good. That's very true. Uh, Kendra, I got to interrupt for one moment for this very important message. This episode of Run As Radio is brought to you by the Humanitarian Toolbox. Humanitarian Toolbox builds open source software for disaster relief organizations. One of the leading projects called Two Weeks Ready helps individuals, families, and communities prepare for disasters using smartphones. HDBox builds and operates this and other applications on behalf of a variety of disaster response organizations, and they need your help. Go to htbox.org for more information or to make a tax-deductible donation. HDBox is a 501c3 U.S. registered charity. Your donations help support the creation of this life-saving software. Thanks. And we're back. It's Run As Radio. I'm Richard Campbell. That's Kendra Little over in Cambridge, an American abroad. How long are you going to stay? Have you got a plan? Oh, well, uh, you know, I don't <laughs> the plan. The original plan was, you know, we're going to move to the UK and we're, it's great. We're going to get to be able to explore. We'll be able like I've never been to Ireland. Right. Um, wow. I could take a weekend flight and, and visit Portugal. Yeah. Um, and so like all of these ideas we had about one of the things they kind of say about England is it's the doorstep to a lot of uh, interesting places. Well, we haven't even seen a lot of the interesting places in England yet. Right. Yeah, of course, because it's been pandemic time. But yeah, I realize, you know, when you live in Canada, U.S., like our vacation spots are, ooh, long weekend twos, right? It's like, I can pop down to San Francisco for a long weekend. But it, out of England, it's like Ibiza, right? Which... For us on the, in North America, that's like a mythical place. You, why would you ever go there, right? It's a long, long way. It's kind of special. But for them, it's it's a weekend. So, yeah. You're exactly. Gonna, so. So, at some point, you're going to get to do that. I don't know. Maybe this year. But, yeah, no, it's interesting. But you also are now close to headquarters, right? I mean, that's got to be powerful, too. The same way I find most Microsoft people at some point spend time in Redmond because that is – the mothership, like this is, you are close to the home base of, of Redgate now. It's true. And though, interestingly, you know, I used to be a remote worker and as a remote worker, I would actually fly over uh, fairly often. I was in DevRel and I would fly over, you know, at least once a quarter for at least a week. And right. I would spend time, you know, it was almost like, you know, some companies now are moving into a more remote model where people do, or mostly remote model you know there's so many hybrid right. ways but where where people come together periodically to get together and exchange ideas and meet up and the way i worked with people was more like that so i actually did spend more time face to face with my colleagues pre-pandemic as a remote person right than i do in this pandemic world and there's a power to the one week you all get together like you prepare an agenda it's like oh we're only going to be together this week like what are the things we want to get through where when it's when it's every day not that it's been <laughs> but there's not that same energy around that but yeah this i'm wondering about the state of culture in many companies 
after this year of only remote. Like we, what cues we take in person, we don't get on camera. Uh, and it's it's been an ongoing conversation. It's sort of on the side of all that. Is at the same time, it's like most of the metrics of productivity have come across pretty solidly. Like I think the rate of feature creation and stuff has still been really high. Like I don't know how your team's been, but like people are making things. There's no two ways about that. We are definitely making software and selling software and evolving how we think about software. We're learning about our customers. Our our customers are doing lots of stuff. I mean, we, um, you know, if anything, people mention that they don't have as many breaks in their day. Yeah. You know, they haven't built in the time they used to have when they went into a physical office more often. So maybe, if anything, we might be a little bit too productive yeah. sometimes for uh, for our own good, I wonder. Well, we used to look at those breaks as overhead, right? It's necessary for me to move from here to there and that sort of thing. And that's just overhead. And now it has to be intentional. Like we're giving... Uh, that breathing space agency that it's like we have to intentionally take time to make your notes, recharge, like do the equivalent. I avoid making tea in my office so that I have to go upstairs to do it because it gets me out of the office even to just have a cup of tea, to make a cup of tea. I mean, bring it back down here, but it's like there's not wouldn't be that hard to throw a kettle in here. I drink my tea black, but then I literally wouldn't leave this room at all. And that's not good. Yeah, no, that is actually a really uh, good habit to have as well. There's there's interesting um, things that the that this has given us that I I hope we really get to keep. So um, we're a company that has people in different time zones. Right. Uh, we have U.S. offices. We have an Australia office. We've got a Berlin office, and and it's enough that it's actually there's no one time when everyone can be together. Right. But this has led us to doing things like um, developing, there's a company-wide uh, internal training week where people, a conference, internal conference, mm -hmm. where people give sessions and train each other and share. And this used to be just an in-person event in the Cambridge office right. that was in the engineering teams. But since the pandemic, it's been made a company-wide event, and we've done it twice now. And it's become more inclusive of other offices and uh, adapted more to not being, you know, not being all day, not exhausting people, taking more advantage of the overlap hours and including more people from different offices as the presenters, which has been a really, really positive thing. So I think this is one of the hard things with uh, being uh, making software in a remote world or really doing anything in a remote world is is optimizing across time zones. Yeah. Because I have noticed one of the big things with moving to the UK has been, it is a really powerful to be in the same time zone with people. Right. You just have more time together where even you can communicate in a chat room, right? And I also wonder um, if you're just sort of in the same mental state. It's morning when it's morning, it's evening when it's evening. Like you, you, you're automatically communicating more efficiently in a lot of respects. We're all drinking tea. Yeah, at the same time, right? Where, I mean, here I am on the west coast of, of BC, you're in Cambridge, it's evening for you, it's morning for me. I'm drinking tea because it's morning for me, but you could easily have a glass of wine. Not that you do, but, you know, it's the end of your day when we're chatting. Yeah. And I think that does set a tone to the way people approach conversations, especially about anything difficult. You know, you're trying to make product decisions, you're trying to figure out how to reallocate resources, like those are times where you want all of the, as many 
minds aligned as possible. And, and the time zones can be an impediment to that. They can be. Um, I do wonder if a remote world does help kind of clarify certain things. So, and I'm not thinking as much about my current job as I am about kind of all of the jobs I've ever had. Right. With, with in-person cultures, I wonder if more back-channeling goes on sometimes. Almost if it's certainly. easier to back-channel things with in-person conversations than it, than it, and it's somewhat less natural to back-channel things when either you're typing the message out or it could easily be recorded. Yeah, or and a number of times now, I mean, more than ever, I've seen folks say, hey, do we really have to have this meeting or can we just agree on something here in email? Like, I know we're having this meeting and I suspect you probably care about this. If this was actually my position, do we still need to have the meeting? You know, yeah. In some ways, I think we're pushing on our efficiency in that respect. It's like, I get that we want to meet and, and so on, but it's like, hey, I've had a lot of screen time this week and I'd rather, if we can just agree, let's move on and get it, take that half hour back. Which that uh, that directness I found really interesting. That more folks are willing to to press that way on on making decisions and and trying to get along, really. Yeah. So it's uh, it's interesting. One of the one of the things we've actually done. I think I I am very much in favor of. Could this have been an email? Can we work on this in an yes. asynchronous doc? Lots of these things. But there's other times too where. Uh, so for example. Um, I work, we follow kind of a, a triad model of product development at Redgate. So we'll have a, a trio of uh, folks from the product management side, uh, folks from the design side, and folks from software engineering, kind of these. And it, it's not that decisions only involve these three groups. We still also have people in marketing. Sure. We have other people we'll bring in, but this is kind of a, tr a product trio. Um, so if you're working on hard problems, uh, one of the, the the main teams I'm involved with at Redgate, um, you know, we're just we're working on some just really challenging, interesting tech technological stuff. And there was a suggestion that we start having just some regular working time meetings. Now, this sounds awful at first. You're like, right. no, meetings should all have an agenda, right? We shouldn't just we shouldn't just have a meeting of quote working time, right? Well. What we've we found a way of working with the working time where we have topics that are all candidate things we need to work on and things we know we need to think through together. And we kind of prioritize them almost like a backlog for the working time. And we only meet if we have things we can agree on that we actually do want to talk through together. But and it, this isn't something we're going to do together, but it actually has been a really great virtual way to um, build up relationships and not get stuck in what what this can help with is not getting stuck in those those 500 line Slack chat message threads, right. right? Yeah. Well, you know, I, I've said this about email, but I think it's also true of all the chats, too. It's like a chat is a chat and an email are not improving every time the reply is longer than the previous message. Like that to me is a is shows we're getting further away from a goal. And, and one of the points I've often made is like, as soon as the medium's not serving, change the medium. So yeah. I write you a paragraph, you respond with three, and my reaction to that is 12 paragraphs, you should switch the medium. Like that's, that you now you're in fully in the TLDR point of nobody's reading this anymore. So hop on a call. Yeah. But, you know, and, and but the, the other token is, that conversation swells and then shrinks. Like that's a successful conversation. The perfect email is the one that just goes, thanks. Right? Got it. 
Like when you're when you're that point where yeah we're in agreement we've actually resolved this that's constructive, but there's a point where it's so large it's not no now you're getting further away. Are people now agreeing with you so you'll stop talking, right? As opposed to understanding and actually you know and, and being in alignment. That's a very different thing, and mm-hmm. and I think being sensitive to that, just recognizing like chat's not good for everything. Chats only, I would argue chat's only good for a few things. Admittedly, email is certainly not good for everything. Like we're even more confident of that. But being a successful leader is about recognizing when the medium's not serving. You know, I remember once upon a time when email was new, when it was really, really exciting to yes. get an email. Yes. I got an email. so different. Oh God. Yeah. No, no kidding. Uh, and, and has been overused, has been abused. Uh, it's, uh, email has in a lot of organizations, I think email has, has become where the kind of chasing goes, you know, there's a longer term thing that I need to chase you for. And the, the place to chase someone for a a deliverable or to be chased for a deliverable is an email. So it kind of becomes the things that you, uh, don't really want to do sometimes. Yeah. Well, and, and I think we're also seeing a younger culture come in here who looks at, at email communications as way more formal and final, mm. you know, and I am seeing more when working with, with younger folks that we may have a conversation in chat for a while and then hop on a call for a bit. But that summary shows up in an email, which really represents the end of that conversation. It's like, we have now agreed to, and that's what email's for. Is it, it kind of makes final statements, which means you don't be quick to write that email because if you, it's a contract, it's a contract. You're exactly right, Kendra. That's a great way to describe it. Like, that's how it's being perceived. So, you know, being respectful of that. Now, I find it frustrating that we're seeing, you know, conversations around putting a period at the end of a message makes it a contract too, right? Like, I mean, back up a bit. I mean, I'm not. 20 either, but oh, but I can almost see that. It's like, okay, if the conversation is still going on, if we're still exploring these ideas, if we are not all on board with something yet, we're not ready to make a decision about it, leaving all of those cues of, I am open to more conversation about this is important. Mm-hmm. Right? Like it ultimately will serve the purpose better. And by that same token, finalize that conversation. Having that contract is also valuable. Right. People do like it when you when a decision is made too, when they feel like they've been heard and participated in it and are on board. The funny thing is this is DevRel language too, you know? This is all about influence. I've done these talks where I've talked about the difference between leadership authority and influence, and it's like, you know, the only mm-hmm. thing you really have control over is influence. And it doesn't matter how much our authority gives us, you know, uh, ability to say we're gonna do this. If people aren't bought in, they're only gonna do so much. So getting that buy-in, that influence, and getting to that point where they want the decision made, you know, that's like, hey, I think we're all in agreement here. Can we call the ball on this, please? Like, I'm thinking from a PM's perspective, when you can get all that feedback synthesized and say, I think this is where our agreement is, do we agree and get signed off and then can make that final statement, like, that gets it out of people's heads, too. Like, that's incredibly valuable. We know we're going in a direction. We've made, we set this priorities and now we're moving on it. Like, I think people are happy when that happens as well. 
I, I gave a talk, uh, an online virtual talk recently. Uh, it was just a just a ten minute lightning talk. It was, uh, it was for database folks, but it's kind of the users the users guide to product managers, kind mm-hmm. of the database folks users guide to product managers. I love it. And I I used uh, images from Untitled Goose Game in it, uh, which I I mean classic. Everyone loves Untitled Goose Game, but right. I tried to kind of use the goose to depict influence. Right. Like you can influence people by annoying them. <laughs> yes, you can. They're going to just chase you around all the time. You can't do that all the time. You've got to be clever about uh, how you influence people yes. in order to actually check off your list of goose tasks that you want to get to. Um, the metaphor doesn't hold out that <laughs> completely. <laughs> like eventually you're kind of like, wait, if you're, are you really just a goose? <laughs> <laughs> no, you're trying to be more. And, and I think, but I think it's really a valid thought around there are less constructive ways to get to a resolution, but they create cumulative harm too. Like there's a point, it's also like writing bad software, like it'll work for a while, but at some point its instability will undermine everything. And I think the same thing happens in any team. If we're not having constructive practices to making feature decisions and keeping people, you know, working on things they care about, eventually the team becomes non-functional. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And more and more with software as well, more, I mean, we live in a world of subscriptions of all sorts of, you can, you can subscribe to cars now, right? You can buy a tractor on subscription and with subscriptions, if your product doesn't work well, People will simply unsubscribe yeah. and find something else that fits it, right? It so to move on. customer success is really more and more important. Not only does your product need to work, people need to be able to begin using it. Yeah. Well, <laughs> and it, I I appreciate when a company aligns their goals with mine. If you only get paid because the product helps me be successful, that's pretty compelling. Like then at least we're both pulling in the same direction. My success is your success. Uh, you know, I think Microsoft switching over to the cloud model where they only get paid when we consume Azure, not when we agree to set up an account. You know, that's pretty compelling, too. So it's interesting to see in all the things that have happened in the past year, how much a push to these kinds of common alignments appear that, mm-hmm. you know, they, we're only happy when you're happy or we're only paid when you're paid. Like that's those are powerful times. Man, Microsoft as I mean, so I've you I mean, we've worked with Microsoft for a long for time, decades. right? Like sometimes sometimes I just look at like how much has changed, yeah. like how dramatically things have changed where now it's things like we want to build our database code on a Linux build agent. <laughs> What, that shouldn't be a big deal. Uh, maybe we want to be able to deploy to you know our database code to a, a non-relational database hosted by Microsoft in their cloud. Yeah. Um, all sorts of things I never would have predicted. Well, and for a long time we lived in this happy little ecosystem where it, if it was you just used Microsoft stuff, you didn't think any of that anymore. And that's not the way we're doing stuff anymore. It, it, there is much more diversity there in in the technological stacks and advantages to using sort of the best things in each place. Is like the number of folks yeah. I'm finding who would rather run their production servers on Linux in the cloud because it simply saves them money. You know that that that's hard to argue with. And then you know yeah. how what what does that actually look like from a maintenance management and operations perspective? You know those are all challenges. Uh, but I got to think it's hard on you guys too. You used to only worry about SQL Server. 
you got to worry about a lot of other databases these days. <laughs> Yeah, there there are a lot of databases in the world. There's uh, everything from CockroachDB right on up. So, I mean, <laughs> what a there's a, Regate actually acquired a tool. It's been, I think, almost two years now, a tool called Flyway, mm -hmm. which is uh, and it actually has an open source community version. So I, I love that we have open source uh, database DevOps tooling with free community version. But one of the reasons Redgate acquired Flyway is it can talk to CockroachDB. It can <laughs> talk to uh, DB2. It can it can talk to a variety of relational databases because there is customer demand for that. Right. People use a variety, you know, different types of databases for different things. It's very normal to have multiple types of databases in your environment and to to want to have a high standard of uh, development and automation and testing for code for these databases. Yeah. So um, it's definitely an, I mean, I don't think it's something to, it's an opportunity more sure. than something to, to worry about. Right. It's no, no, but it's also a mixing of cultures. Like hopefully you can pick best of both. Like there are some really powerful things around that open source culture and the way they approach software and there's a really powerful things about the discipline and architecture around enterprise and and these DevOps practices that maintain reliability at such a high level, uh, you know, and it may be a bit more formal for some folks than they're used to, but it has its advantages. So if you can pick and choose yeah. all those things, you really get a lot of advantages. Yeah. And it's, it's fun comparing things in these different databases. Sure. I, I feel like, I feel like Snowflake, I might be wrong about which one it is, but I think it's Snowflake. They, I think they have an undrop table command. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, oh, it's you, undropped You can table. do that? That's awesome. <laughs> I know. I'm like, well, okay, all you other database folks, listen well, up. Yeah, we want up. undrop table in all of these. <laughs> I love it. That's great. Uh, well, Kendra, what's next for you? Where Are you, are you actually going to get out of the house at some point here? Got any events planned? I, uh, so, I mean, on a personal note, so we have two uh, Pembroke Welsh Corgis, right. which we love very much. And actually, I think you and I have something in common. I believe you sometimes put your dog in a backpack. I do. Uh, the old, and he's right below me here and huffing at me too. He's 16 now, right? Karen, a 16-year-old Karen, uh -huh. Karen Terrier. We got the pack for him a couple of years ago because he always wants to go on the hike. But in the summer mm -hmm. when it was hot, he just run out of gas. And he's yeah. 25 pounds, right? Ten, you know, well over 10 kilos. That's was gigantic for a Karen. And he's fit. Um, and, you know, that's where the vet complains to me. Like, you're going to keep your dog this fit. He's You're going to lose his mind, not his body. And that's what's happening. And he's starting to have seizures and so forth. But a couple of years ago, we got the pack for him. So he, on the hike, when he ran out of gas, I just stick him in the pack and we keep going. And now... Now that he can only walk about a kilometer before he's done, mm -hmm. and he's, but he still wants to go... We've just been, he's been in the pack a lot more. And his name is Zach. Yeah. So pretty quickly it got named the Zach Pack. The Zach Pack, yeah. absolutely. Well, it's, so we have backpacks for the Corgis. And so we can do things like ride bicycles with them. Right. <laughs> right. So, but one, it's, it's amazing that it does really, um, I think it stimulates them to be outside, oh, yeah, to smell totally. things, to see things. Um, but anyway, so we've got the Welsh, the Welsh, Pembroke Welsh Corgis, but we've never been to Wales. So one of the things that's coming up, we're allowed now to travel to Wales. We're gonna we're gonna take the corgis to their fabled homeland uh, of Wales. I love it. And how big are they? Like I've always thought corgis are pretty good sized dogs because they're cattle dogs, really, right? 
They are herding dogs yeah. of cattle, I think maybe also of sheep, but I think maybe primarily of cattle because they're short. Yeah. So I think the, the idea was if the cattle kick, it just goes right over them. Yeah, they're too low. It doesn't, it doesn't make contact with them. Um, I feel like uh, our littler one is about, she's about 20 pounds and then Stormy, I think is about 25. But right. I, you know, I could be totally wrong. But on Short legged numbers. and long bodied and cute butts. That's right. Big in personality. Yeah, a lot going on. But, you know, yeah, no, all those working. Karen's are are vermin dogs from the Isle of Skye, which I've been to. And I always want to bring him, uh, but I couldn't put him on an airplane. It's just like, but, you know, I love being in Scotland where it's normal to have your dog under the table. Like, that's just normal. Oh, absolutely. Right. And every time I'm in there with all these dogs under the table, so well behaved and like Zach would fit in here. But the that is purely my hubris. That I would like my dog to be functioning well there, but to bring him there would be so arduous on him. It's just, I wouldn't, I, I'm not going to do it. And certainly now. There, no. Yeah. There is also a very large amount of paperwork, it turns out, in bringing your corgis in, or any dog, bringing any dog or pet into the United Kingdom. I mean, the USDA got involved at one point oh. and had to stamp the paperwork. There was, uh, I mean, getting the humans in was much less of a big deal than yeah. getting the dogs That's in. It's crazy. So it's a fascinating that you had corgis in the in America and then brought them sort of back to their homeland. That's nuts. Corgis are actually more common in the. We don't see many in the United Kingdom. People uh, associate them with the Queen. Yeah, it's the Queen's dog. There's so not, not a lot of corgis here. I think we may have met all the corgis in uh, <laughs> in England so far. <laughs> That's brilliant. Uh, but it's uh, we the Isle of Skye. I want to loop back. Oh. So you mentioned the Isle of Skye yes. for for any of our listeners. If you've never been to the Isle of Skye, it is one of the most beautiful places Stunning, on earth. Yeah. And by the way, it looks a lot like the wilder parts of British Columbia, like just rocks and trees and ocean uh, mixed tightly together. Yeah. Uh, it's a go- it's a gorgeous location. And yeah, I mean, and I'm a Scottish Campbell, like no two ways about it, and uh, for better or worse. And uh, but yeah, it's a fantastic spot. And all those Sky Terriers, the, the Westies and the Scotties and the Cairns. Uh, that's ultimately their origin and they're all vermin dogs and they're fierce as hell for being little dogs. They're quite psychotic, you know, but, uh, yeah, the old man's fading away. It's been, he's been around a long, long time. So the pan, one of the luxuries of the pandemic has been being home with him in these, in these last year, last years. I didn't know if we'd make it through winter. Now I'm worried about him not making it through summer. He can't handle cold and he can't handle heat anymore. So we don't, we don't get too much longer, but at least we're together for it. We have actually started for our dogs. One of our dogs is somewhat young. So mm-hmm. a lot of her life was raised during the pandemic. We've actually started working on, we need to leave the dogs at home alone sometimes yeah. so that you learn how to do that. You need to, co- you need to be able to cope because life is coming back here. <laughs> Things are going to get complicated. So, yeah. yeah. We are hoping life is is coming back for sure. So so what's up next? I, I mean, I... I have submitted to a conference for 2022 that's going to be held in Germany. There's this conference called Data Grillin. And so even if you only have a mild interest in data, even if it's only an occasional hobby of yours, (laughs) this is the greatest conference on on Earth, I would claim. It's a, a wonderful community event. If you like beer, it has the finest beer ever. It is in the middle of nowhere in Germany. 
it I didn't know that Germany had a middle of nowhere. It absolutely does. And this is in it. But it's it just works. You make this journey to the middle of nowhere and there's beer and there's these wonderful database people. So, I mean, that's in terms of conferences in tech. That is actually the next one where I'm like this really it really needs to happen. (laughs) Maybe there will be an in-person conference I can go to before it. But this is the one that like I'm counting on this. Please land this in a in. Well, I'll I'll harass you to be part of uh, of of the uh, SQL Server SQL Azure show in Vegas and drag, drag you back into America again. That'll be December. Presumably by then, the United States will recognize AstraZeneca as a vaccine, so that'll be good. But we'll figure it out. <laughs> will the USDA have to be involved? Yeah, is no, one the, of my yeah, the FDA questions. and the CDC. I don't know the answer to that. That's a good question, <laughs> Kendra. Little, so good to talk yeah, to you. Vegas is a Vegas is a good time. I I yeah. mean I almost you know I I almost can't imagine it at this point, but I want to. You know I want to see the Bellagio fountains again. Yeah, and all of the yeah all of the fun there. It's at the MGM, but you know just take the, we can just take the monorail from there and and see that whole crazy row of hotels. And there's some new ones. They're still building there too. So it'll be an experience anyway. It'd be great to see you in person. Yeah, would do. I would. I would love to do that. Uh, so please do invite me. Please do. We'll work on it. Kendra Little, thanks so much for coming back on the show. Thanks for having me. And we'll talk to you next time on Run As Radio. <laughs> <laughs>